Amen. Ephesians 4, a brilliant passage this is. Hey, let me, uh, let me just walk you through a couple of things here. We've been going through a series called Built by Christ. This is God's vision for his church. And uh, so each of, these, each of these sermons has been uh, from a lot of different passages. We've been kind of going through the New Testament and talking about what it means to be the church. And our first Sunday, we talked about Jesus as the founder of the church, if you remember this. Uh, the church is not our idea, kind of a good, good plan that we might get together and try and get something done, but it's actually God's idea. It's Jesus' idea. He's the founder. And in the second week, we talked about how uh, not only has Jesus founded the church, uh, but God has filled the church with his Holy Spirit so that the church becomes the temple, the very presence of the living God. And so not only are we gathered by God, but we're filled by him as a, a supremely wonderful gift. And last week, we talked about worship. If you were here, we talked about, okay, in light of that, if Jesus has founded us and the Spirit indwells us, what do we do? Uh, well, we're to worship. And we talked about how worship is not just the praise that we sing on a Sunday morning. It's not just that bracket of songs before the sermon, uh, but it's actually what, what you do all through your life. In fact, it's what you're living out Monday to Saturday uh, in all the decisions that you make. We talked about uh, honoring God, worshiping Him in, in your social decisions, in your sexual decisions, in your financial decisions. Do you remember that? Those three things. And then we also talked about keeping Christ at the very center of who you are and what you do. So that's where we've, that's where we've come so far, in, in brief. And now here we are in Ephesians. If, uh, if you wanted to title this sermon as anything, it would be that the church is one body. The church is one body. Uh, you'll leave your Bibles open for this, so if you have them, take a look again at Ephesians uh, 4, verse 1. I, therefore, that's how it starts, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's good to ask, when there's a therefore, I was taught this in youth group, uh, when there's a therefore, you ask, when it's therefore, and uh, the therefore is there, uh, because of what Paul has done in the previous three chapters. So the first, the first uh, three chapters of Ephesians are this sort of soaring, uh, soaring theology that what God's eternal purposes are in the world through Jesus. That because of Jesus and the gospel, God wants to come and save you and save His people to forgive people and bring them into redemption and new life. This is the gospel. And so he's talked about God's eternal purposes, what all that looks like. It's the first three chapters. And then, verse 4 to 6 are sort of, in light of all of what God has done, how are you going to walk that out? So God's done this, what are you going to do now? How are you going to live this, right? And so that's what the therefore is. Therefore is because in light of all this theology, here's now what we're supposed to live. This is sort of classic Bible logic. God has done this. Therefore, we're called to do this in response. We don't start the action. We respond to what God has already done. So here's what God has done in Christ. How are we going to live? And folks, some of us may be drawn more to the, more to the theology of it. Like it's, it's really interesting thinking about what God has done and why and how all that works through Jesus. And that's really good. We need that. Some of you are maybe drawn to the real kind of practical element of it. Like, okay, how do we live in light of that? And what Ephesians does really well is that it brings them together. So you, if you're trying to just get on living, but you don't understand why or what God's done, you're going to go off track. And if you just understand and have a lot of 
head knowledge about what God has done, but you're not living it, you're also going to go off track. So Ephesians brings the theology and the practice together, let me suggest up front. We need to do the same. Uh, how you live for God will inform what you know about God and how you think about God. What you know and think about God should inform how you live for Him. And so you, this is sort of a, a pattern from theology to praxis. This is where we are here. That's just kind of basic, uh, kind of biblical Christian living. So what does he say? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called in light of all those, those previous three chapters. And then he, what he does is he, he outlines three things for us if, uh, if you want to kind of break this down, chapter four, that what we've read. So he talks about unity, these first six verses, hey, unity, one body, right? Then he talks about diversity, this is verses seven to 12, and then he talks about maturity, uh, that's from 13 to 16. So unity, diversity, and maturity, that's where we're headed. Unity, let me start there. Take a look again at how he begins this passage. Walk in a manner worthy of, of that which you've been called. And then what does he do? He lists a whole bunch of character traits, hey? All humility and gentleness with patience and bearing with one another in love. And this might sound really similar to last week, but basically Paul's saying, look, you need to learn how to get on with each other properly. You need to learn actually how to love each other. And that is uh, it's really easy to say, but again, it's, it can be something else to actually live this. So we return to this again. You need to learn how to love one another. Let me just take 30 seconds on each of these, each of these points. Humility. Humility is not a virtue in the ancient Near East. To say you were humble, no one would think that's a good thing. Humility is terrible. What you want to do is be proud and assert yourself and kind of make a name for yourself. But no, Paul calls us to humility. Why would he do that? I think humility combats uh, our common foil, which is pride. It's easy to be prideful. Um, humility is not thinking of yourself less or worse. That's not humility. Humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is and seeing the dignity and the value of every human being that you encounter and respecting them. So that's, that's humility. It's not saying, I'm terrible. I'm uh, no good. Um, that's the point of me. That's not humility. That's just self-deprecation. That's not good. So humility. Then he says gentleness. I think gentleness is also, like humility, really easily misunderstood. But gentleness, folks, isn't, it isn't weakness. It's not lack of zeal. Gentle, to someone who's gentle is someone who's mature enough to, to understand their own confidence in themselves. And in this case, your confidence in the Lord, to understand who you are in Christ. So you don't need to be kind of boisterous and all over the place. You know who you are. You can be gentle and confident in that firm foundation of who Jesus is. Um, Jesus actually refers to himself as being humble and gentle. So if you think for a minute that these are really kind of lame, you know, character traits, what's the point of this? Well, actually, if Jesus thinks being humble and gentle is good, um, we should probably think so also. That makes sense to me. Humble and gentle. Then he talks about patience and love. These also kind of go together. But love, folks, I think is kind of the linchpin. Because love means to actually seek the best in someone else, to actually seek the good for them. Um, so when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, that means to actually seek the good and seek the best for our enemies. That's really a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But uh, that's what we're called to. Basically, what, what Paul's saying here is, 
humility, gentleness, patience, love. Basically, you need to be following Jesus. You need to be living on his character. That's what you're called to. So therefore, because of who Christ is and all that he's done, you need to start living like him. That's what he does right at the frontier. Now take a look at verses 4 to 6. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called of the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and through all. Just a soaring, beautiful piece, hey? It's fantastic. I think what Paul's saying here is, look, at, you're already one. You're already united, actually. You already are together. You are one body in one spirit. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism, right? There is one God and Father of all. So this oneness... Uh, it's already true of us. Folks, you know, sometimes with church, it's difficult. A lot of the, the central truths of what it means to be church and be a Christian are invisible. So when we talk about being united with Christ, that's sort of an invisible thing. You can't really see that physically. Um, when we talk about Jesus living inside of us, it's not as though you could kind of do an autopsy and find him in there, right? You'd laugh. you go, well, of course not. <laughs> So a lot of the central truths of what happens when we come to the gospel, come to Christ, and come to faith, are invisible things. Um, but they manifest themselves in, in exterior ways. I think what's happening here is Paul's saying, look, you're already united. As a church, you're united. Um, it might not always look that way, though. You're already united because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's the reality that you're living in. You are deeply united simply because of the gospel. So now, because that's true, let's make that visible in how we live out our lives together. Hence the humility and the patience and the gentleness and the love. This is already what's true, now let's live it out. So for instance, as an example, uh, when you get married to someone, you make some vows, and you say, uh, now the reality has changed, we are one. And uh, our lives are joined together in a really unique covenantal relationship kind of way. Um, that's all well and good, and it's very true, but you need to then begin to walk that out. It needs to inform your character and how you live. Uh, it means, um, till death do us part. That's going to have some implications on your life. It, uh, it means, I will be faithful to you only. That's going to have some implications on your life. Do you see what I mean? So, so in, the, in the vow, in the covenant, some stuff happens, some significant things happen, but then there's a life to live. In the same way as we come to Christ, some amazing things happen in our lives as we're forgiven and transformed. Um, but then there's a life to live. Uh, your conversion's a good beginning for your Christian life. It's not the end, it's the start. So Paul's saying, let's make visible the unity we have together. And notice this, our unity is deeply Christ-centered. It's all about his character and his redemption. Folks, that's what makes us family. Because we're united together in Christ. But, but we're also, this is a beautiful Trinitarian passage. Do you see this? Look, he talks about the Spirit and the Lord, which is the Son, and one God and Father. So Paul's pulling this all together. He's saying, um, God in Trinity, whose character and love is shown primarily through Christ, he's the source, he's the ground for all of your unity, all your sustenance in the Christian life. All comes from God. You're united in Him by one Spirit. It's, it's one faith in Christ and baptism into Him. 
um, one God that you worship and serve. So this great sense of unity, God is the source and he's the sustenance of our unity. Therefore, walk this out in a manner worthy of what you've been called to. This beautiful life that you've been invited to, let's start walking it out together. Does that make sense? It's the unity bit. Start living it out. All right, what about diversity? This is the second section, starting in verse 7. I think it's important to say that unity in the church doesn't equal uniformity. So it doesn't mean we're all going to look exactly the same, or we're all going to have the exact same gifts. And that's exactly what this passage here is about. Different people with really different gifts. Let me read to you again verses 7 and 8. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he had led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We'll come back to that. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up. That's on the page for me. Building up the body of Christ. I had to turn to finish that sentence. What, what's that? Point? Where are we? Right. Ascended on high. Um, I've talked about this before. This, kind of, this is a bit of a weird metaphor for us, hey, as sort of modern readers. What, what's he talking about? The idea here that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives is uh, sort of a picture of a conquering warrior. So you go off to conquer your neighbor, whoever, and you win. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and, and you get a good bounty, and then you come back home with your bounty to give to your people. This is what you would this is what you would do if you were a king. You come back to your palace or whatever, and you kind of give up a portion of what you got from your from your conquering. Right? Very good. Well, this is what uh, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Paul's saying. So Jesus has gone and conquered sin and death. And in doing that, he returns to his people, returns to the church, all who come to him, and he gives gifts out of the bounty of what he's conquered and won for us. Does that make sense? So he comes sort of as a reigning victor and says, here's the spoils of the war that I've won for you. And he starts giving out gifts. What does he give out? Got some five kind of big ones here, hey? gave the apostles. So what, what's interesting is he's giving people, not just sort of gifts. It's different from other gift lists in, in Scripture. He's talking about sort of people and callings. So you've got your apostles, your prophets, your evangelists, your shepherds, and your teachers. Uh, sometimes we call this the five-fold ministry. Apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, or pastors and teachers. And sometimes the, the shepherd-teacher one kind of goes together. Um, so there's, there's a, kind of four, but it just depends on how you translate it, so don't get too caught up in that. It's okay. Let me, let me just briefly touch on each of these. What are these gifts that Christ has given us? Apostles. So you've got apostles, you've got sort of a big A and a little A, I like to say. You've got a big A apostle, which is the 12 apostles. Uh, they are eyewitnesses to Jesus. They write scripture. Um, if there's someone running around today that we call an apostle, we don't mean capital A apostle. It's a very different thing. Um, they have a very unique place as eyewitnesses, um, ones who knew Jesus, uh, you know, walked with him, sat with him, ate with him, capital A apostle. Then you've also got folks that we, we talk about kind of having apostolic gifting. Have you heard of this? Sometimes 
that would be better defined as sort of a lowercase a apostle. And what, what that means when we use it that way is sort of in a broader sense, these are folks who are really good, the kind of entrepreneurs, they're really good at sort of extending the church into new frontiers. Sometimes giving oversight to a larger group of churches. Um, so sometimes we have folks that come, they sort of have this apostolic gifting where they, they oversee and, and shepherd and give direction to kind of a group of churches. Does that make sense? Um, these are folks that are that are really good at sort of the church planting and getting out there and um, bringing the gospel into new frontiers. Um, they're really kind of entrepreneurial, really pioneering the apostle. Then you've got your prophet. You probably understand what prophets are. These are folks that hear from God. We're all called to hear from God, but these are folks who are particularly keen uh, to, hear, to hear his voice in particular circumstances and then speaking a certain clarity and truth. I like to say this as, all, as well. We're talking about prophetic gifts. Um, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you have lots of prophets running around doing things. Um, they often speak about the future. Absolutely, there's an element of foretelling that goes on. Um, but just as important as that, the prophet also uh, foretells. He doesn't just foretell, he foretells. And he calls the people back to faithfulness in God. That's the prophet's role, actually. is not just to kind of always reveal some wacky thing about the future, though that can happen. But always his call is, or her call, is to invite people back to covenant faithfulness, back to obedience to God. So we need to hear his voice and walk in it. That's the prophetic calling. So often prophets are our artists. Uh, there are painters, and our dancers, and our writers, and our poets are often prophets uh, because they call us back to truth. And uh, they're, they're wonderful people to have in the church, often very creative, not always. And indeed, we do need the folks that will say, I think this is coming in your life. There's a good way to do this, folks. Um, you don't stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Don't do that. You are, uh, we're all broken. Uh, we're all sinful. We can get things wrong. It is much better to say, dear friend, dear Mitch, I believe the Lord is giving me this word for you. I now give the word to Mitch. Then I say, Mitch, I don't know if that resonates with you, but I want you to go and pray about this word. I want you to seek out the authority uh, pastors and people in your life and say, um, this word was spoken over me. Does this sound correct? Does this resonate with you? Mitch, the other thing I want you to do is get into scripture. And if something I said is actually contrary to the character of God, you can toss it out. That's how you judge a prophetic word. So it has to line up with scripture. See if it resonates with what the spirit is leading you into and see if it resonates with what others in authority in your life uh, recognize in you. I was talking to a friend actually this week and he said someone had spoken a word over him. What do you call it? A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom or whatever. I had this word for him. It was a very corrective word. He'd be very careful with these. A very corrective word. And he said it really didn't sit well with me. So I approached the authority people in my life. I approached some pastors and mentors and whatnot. I said, do you see this in me? Like, am I being whatever? They said, no, we really don't see that. We don't see it at all. And he checked with quite a few people. At the end of that, what does he do with the word? He can rightfully dismiss it. And in fact, as they were discerning that, it became quite clear that the person who had spoken this word had done so in a very kind of vindictive spirit. And it was... Not so much from God as much as from them. They were going to tell them. 
Here's what you need to hear, thus saith the Lord. Now you can't contradict me. Well, don't don't mess around with that sort of thing. So, got your apostles, these visionary missional types. You got your prophets, like that cause back to faithfulness in God. You got your evangelists. These are the folks who are really good at inviting people to come and know God. We're all called to share our faith. These are the ones who are just sort of itching to go speak and, and preach and share with unbelievers. I know a few people who are really like this. They're fantastic people. I'm not good at this. I'm called to share my faith, but I am not good on soapbox. Um, these folks are, uh, are, are really good at that. Are new people entering the kingdom of God? That's their question. Then you've got your shepherds, your pastors, pastoral folk. These are the ones who are good at nurturing growth and community life, growing up in the love of God. And you've got your teachers who are saying, so do you understand what's going on? Let's pass on the wisdom and the truth uh, of the church, of the scripture, on to the next generation. We need to do that. Um, do you understand who God is? Are you in his word? What's great about all five of these, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, is Jesus actually lives all five. He's kind of the founder and the basis of all five of these giftings. Um, so, you know, what a great example to have. Uh, if, if you don't know, I lean into the shepherd-teacher kind of camp. I don't know if that was obvious or not, but that's where I live. That's where I live. Now, you might say, after all that, great, he's given us all these people that can then do the ministry. Well, actually, not quite, right? Take a look at verse 12 again. He's given us all these folks to do what? To do the ministry? No. Actually, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Oh, oh no. Oh no. That means all of you, me, all of us are called to do the work of ministry. I can't just sit back and go, well, Pastor Velma is called to ministry. I'll just let her do it. I'll sit over here, thank you very much. I don't want to get involved in all this, no. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He gives these gifts of people to the saints in order to equip everyone to live out ministry. So that means, folks, all of you are called in some way to serve and to minister uh, in the gospel of Christ and in the world. Whatever that might look like, I don't know. You need to seek the Lord on that, perhaps. But my job, and Thelma's job, and, and the elders, Doug and Linda, and as Jordan and Casey are doing pastoral work also, all of us, our job is not to just do the ministry so the rest of the rest of you can sort of sit back and go, fantastic, we did minister to you. Isn't that great? Give me a Wow, brilliant. No, no, no. Your job then, as you're equipped, is to begin to do the ministry yourselves. And uh, even ones who are ministers, like me, I still need people in my life to be equipping me, pouring into me, so I can minister well. See how this works? We really need each other, don't we? The diversity of gifts that Christ has given to each one of us. For what? To keep us doing the work of ministry. The real ministry, folks, belongs to each and every one of you. That's the real ministry. It's what you're going to do in your life. It doesn't mean you're called necessarily to church leadership ministry, but in your workplaces, in your schools, uh, when you're at home, in your families, all of those are the places where God is waiting for faithful Christian men and women to live for Him and to serve Him. So you're not being necessarily called to a new vocation, but you're called to be faithful to Christ when you raise your kids, in your marriage, um, as you buy groceries, 
as you do your work, as you're a tradesperson, whatever it might be, you're called to do the work of ministry in that place. Be a witness to Christ in word and deed, wherever you've been planted, folks. That's what you're called to. Brilliant. Each playing the part. So you've got unity, verses 1 to 6. Then we've got a diversity in the body of Christ, verses 7 to 12. Now maturity, look at verse 13. This is the goal, I think, of all the unity and all the diversity. This is really the aim, is that we would attain maturity in the fullness of Christ. Not like children. Hey, look at verse 14. So you no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know when you get a phone call or you get one of those weird emails? Um, that's clearly a scam. But sometimes you get one and you're going, wait a minute, is this real? What? Oh no, it's not. They spelled everything wrong or whatever, you know. That's kind of what he's saying here. But don't get, don't get pulled away by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to be grown up in the faith. Don't get, don't get pulled aside by every, everything that smells a little bit Christian but isn't. You know, don't get, just because someone says they believe in God doesn't mean they believe in Christian God, your true and living God. So you don't need to get worried about that. Um, sometimes people say, well, why would God do this? I'm angry at God. You know, how could he ever let this happen? I do this. Like, well, I'd be angry with him too if that was who he was. That's not my God. So don't get carried away by stuff that uh, is not true. This is why Paul says you need to be growing into maturity, folks. So that when stuff comes down in your life, down, down your way, you can discern, is this really from God or not? We need each other, right? Because we are united and because we have a diversity of gifts to help one another. We need each other to help us discern, okay, what's from God and what isn't? Are we growing up in Christ or not? Or are we totally sidetracked somewhere? We need each other to do that. I think there's two ways here that we can be immature. We can be immature in doctrine, right? Carried away by every wind of doctrine. It means you're not grounded in a solid biblical foundation of who Christ is. But you can also be, be uh, immature in speaking the truth in love. So remember how we talked at the beginning that there's uh, first three chapters of Ephesians are this beautiful theology then this beautiful call to live it, like theology in your praxis. You can be immature in your theology and not have a sound, uh, sound formation in who Christ is in Scripture, but you can also be immature in how you're living. You see how the two are come, they've come together again, they've shown up again. You can be immature in what you know, or you can be immature in how you behave. Um, and God is calling us, Paul is calling us, um, be fully mature, both in what we believe and in how we're living. The two must go together. So speak the truth in love. Doing that, then, verse 15, as we live this out, we get to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole church, everybody, is joined and held together by every joint with which you are equipped each part, each person, each joint, each part of the body, every calling, all the apostles, all the prophets, all the evangelists, all the shepherds and teachers, and everybody, all the saints, everybody, making the body grow, working properly, so that what? We are built up together in love. 
You see that vision then? Great unity, a diversity, so that we grow together into maturity. I think, uh, I think a, a trees are a good metaphor here. There's a call here to be mature in doctrine, right? So there's a call to be kind of putting down roots into scripture, putting down roots into solid teaching, putting down roots into a cultivating a life of prayer, uh, putting down roots into cultivating uh, a deeper uh, sense of intimacy with Christ as you live that out in all the seasons of life that that will come with. Um, but you're also called to have branches that will spread out and serve and speak one another in love. So again, you need to ground yourself. You need to kind of be mature in what you believe, but you also need to be uh, reaching out and interlocking with other branches, other people, so that you can be mature in how you're living, so that you can live with humility, gentleness, and patience and love because of what Christ has done. See how that works? So we need deep roots, folks, and we need wide branches. The call here is to grow grow in our knowledge and to grow in our service. Maturity will mean both of those. And I think, again, folks, Jesus is such a great example of this, isn't he? He lives the truth and he also speaks it in love so well. And I'm reminded back of John, um, where, where John reminds us that the Lord became flesh and dwell among us. We beheld his glory. What's the glory of God? witnessed in grace and in truth. And a love that can speak the truth clearly, um, but also care for the person. And you see that lived out of Jesus, especially, what is it, John 8? The woman caught in adultery, right? Neither do I condemn you, grace. But go and sin no more, truth. So we need to be people that will know the truth and live out the truth, but not without love. Truth without love is just sort of Harsh, and uh, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. This is the truth. You've got to come down on someone, right? There's no love there. If you have love without truth, we're just going to kind of affirm everything and everyone. There's no sin. You're good. Just be the best person you can. Brilliant. You're great, aren't you? It's just, you know, all's well. And when we do that, we ignore uh, the holiness of God and uh, the reality of the gospel. Folks, we are sinful people because we've sinned. Um, our destiny is one of death. Because of Christ, folks, because he loves us, because he's come for us, because of his death, he's taken all that punishment of sin and death. He's put it on himself so that you can have life in him. It's the gospel. Be forgiven. You become whole and transformed because of Jesus. It's, it's, it's love and truth. Because of that, therefore, walk in a manner worthy the calling to which you've been called. Folks, we're one body. We get to live in response to what Jesus has done for us. It's this wonderful gift. And to this vast vision of what God has for us. So let me close with this, folks. Will you walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Maybe. Maybe you need to lean into these four characteristics of Jesus from the beginning. Maybe you need to ask, Lord, um, am I walking with humility? Am I walking with gentleness? Am I walking with patience? Am I bearing with one another? What a great phrase, bearing with one another. Oh, man. 
I read putting up. No, I mean uh, working together. I don't know. Bear with one another in love. And Paul gets it, hey? The church is no different now than it was then in this regard. It's still people. We're going we're gonna to get on each other's nerves. But he says, bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Folks, maybe you need to ask, am I, am I helping contribute to the unity of the church? In one Spirit, in one Lord, one God, Father of all? Or am I a divisive person? Do I show up and just start saying things that are going to actually pull people apart? Ask yourself that question. Lord, do I seek the unity of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, are, you, are you being equipped as a saint for the work of ministry? I hope you are. But uh, are you then living out the ministry to which God has called you? You need to ask, Lord, am I maintaining unity? Lord, are you calling me to live out the gifts that you put in me? Help me to do that, Lord. And finally, Jesus, teach me to be mature. Help my roots to go down deep in your word, mature in truth, and help my branches to go up well as I seek to love and serve people around me. Mature in truth and mature in love. Folks, and as we do that, we grow together into the head into the, of the body, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.